Hey, everyone. We're in conversation with Bruce Daisley. Bruce is a best-selling author. He's a technology leader from the UK. Uh, he spent eight years as EMEA's vice president for Twitter, uh, having joined that company in 2012. What I love most about Bruce, however, he, I would call him an organizational renegade. Uh, he's the author of The Joy of Work. And when I say renegade, I mean that in a good way, Bruce, because uh, I think we're cut from the same cloth. Uh, where I've been in my career, looking inside of it and then looking outside of it, I find that there's this uh, strange consternation between the employee and the leader and the culture that's sort of manifested over the last decade or so. And so much as, again, my experience, but I'm curious, here's the question, right? What are we getting wrong inside of the organizations for so long to write a book like The Joy of Work, which was outstanding, by the way, you picked up on a whole bunch of trends and insights and just, you know, things that just are, uh, I guess, awry. So let's start there. What, what, what is the opposite of the joy of work? What's going wrong inside of it? Yeah, I mean, look, I think from my perspective, I've worked at a lot of organizations that have had remarkable success. And I think what you recognize when you work in an organization that's been incredibly successful, um, it's, it's that old uh, perennial thing that when you get closer to the people at the top of any organization, the magic disappears a bit because you, you're witnessing first hands. And so when you've worked in organizations that might be celebrated and, and you know, that isn't a specific organization I'm thinking about, but you recognize that um, there's a lot of things that an organization can often thrive despite the leader rather than because of the leader. And right. so, uh, and that's not specifically to call out any organization that's across a sort of the, my whole, my whole working career. And so once you recognize that, then you start thinking, oh, right. So workplace culture, isn't this leader skill. It isn't this invention of remarkable people. It's, it's almost a, a naturally occurring um, part of an ecology, workplace culture, sort of, yes, it can be fostered. Yes, it can be de delivered, uh, <laughs> nurtured, but also it can um, self be self-propagating. And so once you recognize those things, then I, I became fascinated with those things. And what I found was that there are some workplace cultures that are often self-developing and, and self-sustaining that are just pleasurable to be part of and there are some that are just exhausting and almost like there are layers within the organization that are intent on removing the joy and adding bureaucracy to work and it became a fixation you know there's a really interesting trend that's emerging right now where there's almost like um and it's a u.s thing so it's it's not a it's not the invention of European socialists, but it's a it's a US thing. This sort of anti-work ethos yeah, that's yeah. been sort of developing um, a, a little bit, and you know, it's a it's an interesting idea. This idea that work is so toxic that we must give it nothing of ourselves that they didn't pay for, and you know that we must detach ourselves from any fondness or affection for work. And what it fundamentally misses is number one. You know, we we often get a lot of our sense of self from our work, a sense of identity from our work, and that work in itself can be a deeply satisfying thing. And so my my particular interest is not necessarily savaging capitalism and, and saying that, you know, we need to detach ourselves from any sort of connection, emotional connection from our work, but rather more thinking, 
look, you know, if we've got to earn a living, there's no shame in wanting to make that fulfilling, rewarding and satisfying. So I think that's the fascination for me. Do, do we as the employee then, whether you're a leader of self or and or a leader of people, do we is it incumbent upon us um, to identify first those virtues, those values, the, the id, you know, the sense of meaning and purpose? Or is it also incumbent upon the leaders inside the organization to help nurture that of said individual? Or is it actually both? Like, where do you stand on something like that, Bruce? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think one of the interesting things is in the last 20 years, ideas of purpose have been so strongly misappropriated (laughs) that, you know, look, most people, let's be candid about what people might be doing. They might be working at, you know, um, a a manufacturer of a product. So there might be, you know, actually some of the best work in the space has been done looking at people who work in retail stores. Mm. And I don't think we should presume that people should have to be a card carrying loyalist for loyalist for the organization they're working but there is something innate about wanting to try to deliver a good experience and look you see it in retail you see you see it really clearly in retail stores people Mm. who work in a retail store their inclination is if they're given the resources to do it if they're given the autonomy to do it they want to try to create a good experience for their customers And it's often the things that get in their way that make them give up on that objective, the bureaucracy, the layers of rules that prevent them from doing that. And I think, you know, um, and so look, then let's extrapolate that to the rest of the workforce. A lot of us want to do a good job. No one sets about waking up in the morning thinking I'm going to go and break some hearts today. I'm going to create some misery wherever I go. That's largely a learned thing, because if you think there's nothing I can do here, you become detached from any sense of wanting to do it well. So, you know, for me, unfortunately, the ideas of mission and purpose have been appropriated by people who are trying to make us believe that we will change the world with the jobs that we do. You know, when you see soap powder companies and they've told their workers uh, our mission is to bring happiness to, you know, people around the world because clean clothes is happiness. Like, come on, you know, sometimes it doesn't have to be, you don't have to, for me, sometimes you don't have to create a lofty purpose. It can, it can just be, you know, we want to deliver a good product in an effective way. I, I sometimes think, you know, the idea that you end up therefore with drink companies that are sort of, you know, we're, we're bringing happiness to families one sip at a time. Like, come on, it doesn't have to be this construction, this fairy tale to make people buy into wanting to create a good product. I think it can be simpler than that is my take. So then uh, I guess, Bruce, is there any relationship between the culture of the organization, how you know people are treated, how the ecosystem uh, ultimately manifests a way in which that people get their jobs done, and the so-called higher purpose or the purpose of the organization. Do, are, are they incongruent? Is there something to be learned between the two terms of culture and purpose? Where do you where do you stand there? Yeah, my belief is firmly that perp- uh, that um, the way that you treat employees is a linear relationship with the way employees treat customers. Yeah. So, firstly, I, you know, I would say, and the best example I can give you of that is that next time you find yourself in a restaurant, watch the way that the servers are behaving, watch the way that the the bar staff are behaving, 
and ask yourself what you think it would be like to work there. Mm. Um, and normally you get a very clear, you can intuit a really clear sense. I can sort of see what it's like to work here. And, you know, that's largely because that seems to be borne out in the evidence. Um, there's a wonderful academic at Massachusetts Institute of Technology uh, called Zeynep Ton, who mm -hmm. focuses on retail stores. And she makes the point really clearly that, firstly, um, retail stores who give a good employee experience seem to have much lower employee turnover, fewer people quit, in, in other words. And in addition to that, they, they, they tend to have a much better experience, but those firms show higher profit, profitability and they show higher growth than those who don't. It's sort of all these things are part of a virtuous circle, because if you're not spending most of your year recruiting and training new workers, you pretty much remove a cost line from your organization. And, and those things most definitely apply in other sectors too. So we've seen, you know, in, in those examples, retail, and uh, and food service but we witness all the all, this all over the, the the place when we give a good employee experience it generally transfers into a good customer experience the really interesting thing about that is that sometimes um business school people or or leaders don't necessarily see the advantage that good customer service affords as a competitive advantage it sort of doesn't exist on a balance sheet for a lot of these people missing something fundamental i remember i've been in organizations where you know when we were articulating our strategy for the next year we said look we want to be famous for a, a level of customer service and because it doesn't appear to be strategic because it doesn't appear to be like a defendable difference it's often met with scornful appraisal and anyone who's been a customer will tell you that good customer service isn't something to be just scoffed at, dismissed, regarded as a triviality. It's often one of the things that we, um, it forges our emotional connection with organizations. So, you know, um, I think, you know, this is the critical thing for me. It's easy to dismiss good workplace culture, good customer service, but it often makes up the essence of why we choose certain companies to, to buy from and why we, we, we buy certain products, I think. You've, uh, like me, undoubtedly, uh, for two years, sort of uh, sat behind a, a screen, a webcam, a microphone, got out to the odd um, pub and have a beer or a pint every now and then. Here's the question for you. For, the, for two years, effectively, we've had two types of workers, right? We've had those that were allowed the, the opportunity to work from home because they are white collar or whatever you want to call them. They're, you know, um, the new age role. And then you've got frontline team members, whether it's healthcare, whether it is the, the, the grocers, whether it's the restaurants and so forth, whom have had to um, be in front of uh, the virus, be in front of, you know, the customer to serve. Now, the question here, Bruce, is because uh, I, you're, you're sort of like a cultural anthropologist, <laughs> what's, what's coming up next, i.e., will we be suffering from some sort of cultural demarcation going forward where, you know, there's a the lot of us that are still allowed to work from home, have that four-day work week, you know, the 232 model, et cetera, and then you still got frontline team members, healthcare or otherwise, whom have to be on site each and every day. What does your crystal ball tell you from what you've learned over the past two years about said culture, about the experience, about what it is that we should be uh, really conjuring up in terms of how to uh, effectively operate better? 
There's a really interesting thing about that, isn't there? That, that we've most definitely got a hierarchy of what we consider to be um, of more value. So, you know, I was chatting to a, um, a, a local practice doctor um, and they were saying, look, you know, the changes that we've enacted in the last two years, we probably should have done before. And so, you know, some consultations on the phone, in fact, or, or some consultations on video call. Right. In fact, I, I spoke to someone the other day who said to me, you know, it's really strange that we considered it a better experience to take a sick child on, you know, whether it's in a car or on public transport to be assessed. We considered that a better right. assessment than to put a, a sick child on a video call in first instance and then decide from there whether it's worth transporting them. But it's really strange. We've valued face-to-face -face so highly that we haven't necessarily assessed the true value of, of all of the offerings. Look, I, I think most definitely we've, we're going to have in a whole layer of management a bias to face-to-face uh, and I think that's going to run through the organizational culture of a lot of organizations to the extent that they we, we don't necessarily get a, a fair assessment of what works best. I think in the US, because of the way that geography works in the US, probably I suspect you're going to get a little bit more fully remote mm. than you get in the UK. A, a lot of organizations in the UK are going to really push this three days or four days a week in the office model. I think my, my expectation is, and you know, what I tend to do, I, I run a, a, a newsletter and podcast where I basically just go through these, the latest data on these things week to week and then have conversations with people asking them what this looks like in their organization. And I've been chatting to a big retail bank here and, you know, big retail banks is probably, this is, you know, a lot of people who were bank tellers, a lot of people who were, you know, administrative not necessarily the the glamorous tech jobs that you might have thought would change and yet you hear them describing the way that they are transitioning their work model and you can't help but think wow this is firstly incredibly mainstream yeah it's incredibly ambitious in the way they're setting about doing it and they see it as you know a fundamental renegotiation between the way that people did their work and the place that they did that work in. It's really interesting chatting to, to those people. One of the things that they first said to me was we were certain there's one job that could never be done remotely. And that was call centers, telephone call centers, right. because call centers were the closest to, um, they were the closest to sort of um, factories, really that the knowledge work sector had. And yet, the biggest organization to, I dealt with in terms of call centers told me that they were seeing a between a sort of 10 and 15% productivity increase from people working remotely. And so they were like, well, it's a 15% productivity increase. It's a 15% cost reduction. Um, we struggle to understand why we would go back to the way we were doing it before. Now that for me is so fascinating because you know it's very easy to, to style the, the changes to the workplace as being about, uh, you know, the creative sector or the technology sector or, um, or jobs that don't necessarily look like the jobs that most of us do. Mm -hmm. And what you're finding is this is actually far more mainstream than we think. Now, I think as a consequence of that, there's big opportunities here. There's big opportunities for firms who say, 
actually we do want to create an energized workplace culture but we recognize we need to do it in a very different way or organizations to say we don't care about an energized workplace culture we just want really productive workers we're going to go fully remote fully distributed and there's big opportunities for um i think a whole spectrum of different strategies here probably the worst placed organizations are the ones whose strategy here is tradition mm. rather than starting with what our objective is or what our point of difference is they're starting with the way we used to do things and those organizations i think are going to have the hardest situation here it's you know that fortune's going to favor those who are candid imaginative and willing to ask themselves difficult questions and i think you know there's big opportunities for those firms it's funny you brought up call centers uh, in a prior life i was chief learning officer for a big canadian telecom called telus and we in 2010 bruce uh, began the process of something we call flexible work styles and we shifted 3,000 call center team members to be working 95 percent of the time from home and they, okay. in fact, yeah, they, in fact, uh, had and, and again, this still goes on today. I'm still on a retainer with Telus doing great work with them. But um, they went on to, in comparison to their compatriots who are in an office, have a 15 percent higher engagement score. Uh, their their NPS or their customer stat scores were higher on average and their psychological safety scores were through the roof in comparison, again, ironically, to those that were in the office. So I can attest to that firsthand where you yeah. think about, you know, the relative potential inanity of a call center role, some people think. And I think to myself, no, there's actually humanity behind that 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 microphone or that that telephone and you can you can create the culture and allow for things to happen in a way that does create and manifest you know um you know a highly engaged and productive workforce which is what i think everyone wants because the outcome is the happy retained customer who keeps coming back yeah look so fascinating to hear that you know because i think these a lot of organizations you know what i've heard i i was chatting to a chief exec last week and the chief exec said uh, look, I don't know what you think the truth is, but here's the truth. In two years, we're going to be back to normal, uh, five days a week in the office, and it all. And anyone who, everyone will laugh about how this happened. And I said, look, a lot of respect for what you've accomplished, but I think you're a hundred percent wrong because <laughs> you know because I have witnessed. You know, I've been to events when. Um, we, we've sort of uh, we we've, we haven't had a lot of time in the UK where people have gone back to the offices. But last September, October, I went to a couple of events in two weeks for big companies. Mm -hmm. And in one of them, the chief exec stood up and was saying something about, you know, we're going to embrace flexible working going forward. That means you can have one day a week from, you know, at home or somewhere else. Or, you know, and uh, someone stood up like a, a guy in his late 30s and he said, look, you know, we've had a record year in terms of the company success. Yeah. I've had a record year. I've, you know, I've had incredible success. But also I've had through adversity, I've felt more connected to my family. And I've realized the way I was working before was unhealthy and unsustainable. And I'm not going back to it. So, you know, I just want to put the, the company on alert that I think people like me have realized that we had things 
unbalanced before and we are capable of doing our jobs in a more flexible way now across the the world across like every job market there are people who are saying that saying mm. i've done really good work i can prove i've done really good work in addition i've removed some of the stresses that were creating toxins in my life and i'm not going back to the way things are so this chief executive said to me Oh, back to back to normal in two years. Well, you know for a fact then that that chief exec will be maybe begrudgingly allowing some experiments, but have it really clear in his head that when we try these experiments, the conclusion is going to be it didn't work. We're coming back. And so, you know, but the strange thing is from that is I think you can make a decision that you'll be back in the office five days a week. But I think you're going to have to pay a very high premium to get workers to do that. Workers will do it. Some workers, younger workers might be more willing to do it, but you will have to pay a premium to get workers in the office five days a week. So have we, as a result of the pandemic, uh, many workers contemplating you know, their own life, their role, their organization, this contemplative kind of two years, have we entered uh, perhaps arguably finally into the age of the employee or is, is that run amok with sort of where your head is in, in the current state yeah well most definitely it's it's definitely a seller's market in the jobs market right uh, now you nice. know if, if you've got any experience if you've got uh, any sort of value you know um largely you're able to look you, you're able to take a pick of jobs far more than it has been uh, recently remarkable actually because you know at the, when we entered uh covid i think people believed that there was going to be off the charts unemployment and it was going to be economic ruin and you know thankfully we're in a, a far different situation to that um so as a consequence of that it's it is a time for people to think um they aren't necessarily faced with financial ruin if they do want to optimize to support their family life to you know support their um to the people around them so it's um i think it's you know it's a really interesting time, you know, age of the employee, I can most definitely see, you know, in your words, I can most definitely see there's an argument for that to be said, for sure. And uh, I guess one, a couple of final questions. And first of all, thank you. This is so insightful. It, is the executive um, got their head in the sand? That senior leader, you know, the C-suite, like, do they not see the the tsunami that is really there, which is, the employee urging, begging, uh, demanding that, you know, really the, the workplace must change. And whether that's all the above from culture to flexible work to purpose to how I'm being treated to putting the customer first and working backwards. Like, it, where is your head in sort of thinking about where the executive's head is these days? It's definitely mixed. Um, you know, I've seen some very progressive uh, bosses, C-suite, you know, one organization, said to me, a very big uh, British manufacturing firm said to me, you know, they've been desperately trying to improve their culture for the last decade. And actually, this has been a, a catalyzing moment because it's enabled them to remove themselves from the wood paneled meeting rooms that they were having meetings in. And But, you know, they, they were like, we realized more than anything ever before, our building was our culture. And we were trying to change the culture and it actually it was as simple as getting out of that building. So, you know, they said to me a year into the pandemic, we're definitely never going back to that building. So interesting, right. you know, that sometimes 
we, we can't necessarily see what the limiting factors are holding us back. And actually, when, when those things are revealed to us, we're like, wow, this is incredibly liberating. So, you know, that chief exec was a real agent for change. I, I worked with another organization who was like, okay, if we, you know, the mistake that we often make is reappraising, you know, allowing the dust to settle around us, reappraising where we are and thinking, right, okay, I, I now get the measure of this. The mm -hmm. way you might consider that right now, that metaphor is that, okay, people working three days a week in the office, two days a week at home is it the way you might do it. He said, oh, but hang on, if I look down the road, well, what do we know? Hybrid working isn't the best of both worlds, it's the worst of both worlds. People <laughs> traveling in, people traveling in to do video calls with colleagues uh, who are at home will start getting frustrating. So he yeah. said, okay, so we know face-to-face -face has got a real value to it. And we know sometimes the way that hybrid works doesn't get that value. He said, I can see people maybe spending one day a week in the office rather than mm. three days a week and you know once you're on one day a week then it might be like actually it's one it's three days a month you know and actually you know and he was like okay so my plan is how do we become the only firm who are remote first in our sector because he said right now it's going to be such a big marketing point if this is the way i can hire people it's like mm. we're we're remote first go and move yourself to you know, that far flung place that you've always dreamed of. As long as you can get back here, you know, once a month, right. then we're in business. Right. So he was like, okay. And this is a chief exec. He's like, okay, so let's use this as a, let's read the, the, the game. Four moves on, everyone is going to be in this situation, whether that's right or not. It's like, that's his. And so let's jump there now. Now for me, I love that because whether that's right or wrong, it's someone who's, trying to get ahead of the these bewildering transformations that are taking mm. place um and so that was you know thrilling to work with them because then you're like okay right what does this look like <laughs> how can you use this as a way to market yourself to potential job applicants and what are the pitfalls what are the things you need to avoid because you know maybe what we know is trust is easier to preserve face-to-face, uh, -face, although, you know, most of us have managed for the last two years. So how do we build trust in this remote environment? It's just really interesting to watch the most progressive bosses really try and wrestle with those things, I think. Hmm. Wonderful example of exerting gumption as well. I find mm. you know, so many executives or leaders just sort of sit in their hands and are waiting for someone else to, to, to create the, the playbook. Um, so wonderful. Thank you for that. Last one, which is really a segue from your, your anecdote there. Um, what does the office have to become? So when you think about what was the Canary Wharfs, you know, um, London Town, like just the, the office, what do you think? What are you seeing or what do you project to be kind of the, the, the physical makeup and the purpose of the office going forward? Yeah, there's, um, there's a workplace uh, research organization called Leesman. And what they say is they say, um, Workplaces increasingly need to have a workplace. Why? What's the reason why people are coming together in them? So if you're, if you're traveling, you know now that you could do all your emails from home. You could do at least half of your meetings from home. You could yeah. get a lot of your inbox or your, your work done from home. And so the moment you 
get into your car or you step onto public transport, you're thinking, why am I going there? Really important. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that workplace why, answering that workplace why becomes a really critical consideration. And I think, you know, it's pretty clear that, look, if people are working remotely, then um, one of the things that might be valuable in the office is better audiovisual facilities. You know, the, the boss wants to do the end of quarter presentation. Well, far better than him doing it from his desk in his spare room. He goes in, there's a nice studio, there's nice graphics. It's, and so, you know, it might well be that, okay, so we're going to have a nice audiovisual setup in the office. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have great meeting facilities in the office because we're, we're going to say we're going to bring people together for experiences rather than for emails. And so probably a higher spec office that is, is built around um, higher functionality for particular things. I think the office as well, if you think, you know, what are the other trends that we see around us in business? Um, uh, corporate social responsibility. And, and so uh, companies thinking about how they can, how their office manifests their green footprint, their, how the office manifests their sustainability goals. So mm-hmm. you can definitely see offices being far prouder of, you know, all of our energy is renewable energy. All of our waste is, is, is handled in these ways. And these things effectively, the office becomes rather than just a place to go and do work, it becomes an embodiment of who our organization is. So, you know, as people step into the building, they're reminded that all of the energy in this building comes from these places. Right. All of the timber in this building comes from these places. Why? Because it's actually now, now a huge, a, a sort of a place, a pin on the map that is a manifestation of that organization. And I think, you know, that's an evolution of what we saw the office for. We saw the office as our desk and our telephone and our computer. Now the office is the embodiment in a, in a world that's, you know, virtual in so many ways. It's the embodiment of who our organization is in the world. And I think that's a really critical consideration. So look, you know, it's about experiences. It's about answering that workplace. Why it's about showing who we are in the world. I think these are really critical considerations going forwards. Well, so long as there's no David Brents in the office going forward, we'll be all fine, right? Michael Scott's exactly. (laughs) Uh, Bruce, fantastic to chat with you. Thanks so much. Uh, J- the joy of work, which my father sent me, who he lives uh, near you up in Stratford upon Avon, is the, the sort of the English UK title. Tell us a bit about your newsletter, where we can reach uh, out and, and find out more about you and the North American title of the book. Yes, yeah, so the, the, the book in uh, the US is called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, which is the, the name of my podcast and website. Um, yeah. Look, the, the book really was working at big technology companies. I realized the thing I said before was that we all are responsible to some extent in sort of shaping our workplace culture and shaping our experiences of work. So um, so it was uh, fascinating with fascination with those things, really an evidence led uh, fascination with those things. I loved a book a few years ago by the founders of Basecamp called Rework. Rework. And Rework was was about 80 sort of spiky polemics, these angry editorials about, you know, ASAP is toxic and you need to do this and do this. And I thought, if I go into my boss and say, hey, ASAP is toxic, my boss will sort of blink a few times and then, you know, so what? So, you know, the whole point of the the 
the book was, you know, here are things can, that can improve our workplace and here is the evidence behind them. So that was like the thinking behind that sort of almost like a cookbook of workplace cultures, 30 recipes that you can do to try and improve your work. Um, my, my newsletter really has just been documenting it over the last two years. It's just been documenting how work is evolving. Some of these figures, you know, I, I was dealing with a big bank just before an investment bank just before Christmas. And they said, we need everyone back in the office five days a week. Can you come and do a presentation why they need to be back? And I said, look, that's unfortunately not what I, uh, I'm, I'm not in that business. But, uh, and they came back to me a week later saying, you sure you won't do it? And I said, look, if you want someone to come in and present you the latest research about what the jobs market is saying about what employees expect, I can come and do that. And that's all I do with that newsletter. Just like try and track what research we're seeing, uh, what the trends are and you know try and help us make sense of it because there's still so many firms saying you know we've tried things and it's not working or we'd love to know what people in our sector are doing and that's my daily curiosity really trying to track what people in the sectors are doing well indeed you are helping us mere mortals make sense of it so uh bruce thank you for this thank you for all that you're doing i hope to do this again um, and uh, much luck with your future. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you, Tim.